internet. I'm John Bailey, and welcome to episode two of Popcorn Junkie. A slight amendment from last week. Uh, Midnight Special did not come out in any theaters near me. It was in limited release. So this week I'll be reviewing the finale of the Divergent series, Allegiant, the latest Kid Goes to Heaven movie, Miracles from Heaven, the independent comedy, The Bronze, and I'll look back at the stop-motion animated film nominated for Best Animated Picture, Anomalisa. Let's get started. We're saving the city. Shoot her down. So you know how some people thought that the Harry Potter series and the Hunger Games series were going to be some of those really bad young adult movies that aren't very well made but just have all those tropes that cater to young adults? Well, Divergent is exactly what they were worried about. Now, following the success of the Hunger Games, we've had Divergent adapted um, and the Maze Runner. And so it seems that if you have a young adult series that takes place in a post-apocalypse and features some kind of action or child killing of some kind or some sort of faction system, it'll be adapted into a movie at some point. Now, where the Hunger Games movies got better with the second movie and then kind of petered off with that split third movie, Divergent was weird. I was okay with Divergent because uh, with a lot of sagas and a lot of ongoing stories, you need that first movie to set up your universe. So the first movie is just set up. And then what they do with the next movie is how it defines the series. Like, Hunger Games is okay because it's mostly set up. And then by the time we get to Catching Fire, it's really great. And then with longer series like Harry Potter, it took the first couple of movies to really set up. And then by the third movie, we've got our universe set up so that we can really get into the story. With Divergent, by the time the setup was done with the first movie and it wasn't all that great, Insurgent came out and it was just everything bad about young adult movies. It's nonsense writing and bad dialogue that's delivered so hokey and it's all wooden and melodramatic and it's not very well thought out and it's all very poorly done so that it can you know make money you spend as little money as possible and make as much as you can quickly because that's what matters in hollywood making movies cheaply and quickly and then making as much money as you can back for them so yeah this time around um they get out past chicago Uh, They killed Kate Winslet from the first two movies, and now there's, like, a civil war going on in the power vacuum, and outside there's, like, Jeff Daniels and all these future people that watch them, which never is really dealt with. Like, they don't have a lot, you know, it's like one scene of them having fans, and then it's never addressed again. I'm trying to think of, it's been a, I saw it uh, Thursday night, I'm recording Sunday night, and it's mostly gone from my brain other than the visuals because the visuals, yeah, they're futuristic. They're good. But the story is a lot of nonsense. Like, Triss and Four, uh, Shailene Woodley and what what is his name, British guy, uh, they fight for what I can tell no reason. There's, like, no reason. Like, he's jealous that she gets to be with Jeff Daniels and whatever and that 
that I'm having problems remembering everything that happened because it's a lot of just tropes. It's tropes that I've seen in a lot of post-apocalypse. Like, oh, it looks like this government whatever isn't what it seems to be. Oh, they're doing bad stuff. And, oh, no, it's them fighting back against Jeff Daniels and... There's all kinds of super control, and oh no, Miles Teller is a backstabber. Who would have thunk it? Why would you let him live when he's gonna backstab you? I don't know. Like, with Draco Malfoy, you knew he was gonna backstab you, but you couldn't kill him because he's son to a rich, very powerful member of the wizarding community. You can't just kill Draco Malfoy. You're in the future. All bets are off. You could just kill this guy and be like, he came at me. He's dead. Boom. No problem. You're done with this guy. Whatever. Ugh. It's just not very well thought out. Not very well written. Dialogue is still horrible, melodramatic. Like, I can't believe that you're doing this stuff with Jeff Daniels. I'm going to talk in his gravelly voice because I'm edgy. And girls like it when I'm edgy. Or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but the one thing I can say in its defense is at least it's one movie. At least it didn't do the Twilight thing and the Hunger Games thing of dividing it. They knew that they weren't going to make any more money, so they kept it one movie. And hopefully they can just stick to that because we don't need that anymore. We've been shown that splitting up a movie into multiple parts when it could be one movie is unnecessary, and it needs to stop. But thankfully, Divergent's over, and we can just forget about it like the rest of society. There's a lot of people out there that are just looking for publicity. A lot of people think we're crazy. You either roll with it or you get rolled on. told you you'd be fine. Next up, the latest in the Lent series of Jesus movies, Miracles from Heaven, from the producers of Heaven is for Real, or as I like to call it, Heaven is Totes 5 Real, OMG, because that's how serious I take that title. As for Miracles from Heaven, now the first thing I think of with this title is Alan Jackson from that Ladder to Heaven episode of South Park. Where are you when they had those miracles from heaven? You know, that sort of thing. I have problems with the story. In the, because it's passing itself as a based-on-a-true-story movie. Like, the events actually happened. And yet, when I looked into the actual events, the only things I could find were citing back to a Fox News interview with the family, and other than that, it's religious and conservative blog sites. And the one thing that I really retained from my time studying journalism in college is you have to know your sources. That's why if your source is a blog site, I don't immediately buy into what you're telling me. It has to be multiple reputable sources. And if the only major news source telling this story is Fox and there's no CNN, there's no MSNBC, ABC, CBS, nothing like that, there's no other news source out there telling this story, then maybe it's not true. And if there was just something else to corroborate this story, I would be less prone to doubt its integrity. 
As for the actual story, basically what happens is a Texas girl develops a very rare neurological disorder that makes it impossible to digest food. And after several years in real life, and only like uh, probably a few years in the movie, like very truncated timeline. Like they don't really give a good showing of how long this went on. It's very poor timing in the movie. So for several years, most of the girl's life, uh, up until she's 10, uh, she's been suffering with this disorder. And then when she's 10, she climbs 30 feet into a cottonwood tree and then falls down the hollow inside of it. And on the way down, she hits her head in the right spot to kind of reset the neurons in her nervous system so that her body starts to digest. And as far as I could tell, she's not fully healed, quote-unquote, because you can't really heal from a disorder. But she is better. Like, she doesn't need as much medication, and she doesn't need as many treatments. That's it. And the only thing besides that is she says she went to heaven and that Jesus looks like Santa Claus. And yeah, and then that's that. And other than that, I don't know how true her story was. I mean, for any time people say they go to heaven, more often than not, it's one of those out-of-body experiences that people have during surgeries or near-death experiences. It's something like that, where the brain is letting in a lot of light and their mind is going through images and it looks like they're in heaven. At least that's what we know. That's all we know, because it's not very well documented, because you can't really document what somebody sees with their head. There's no way to document that. You can only have you only have to take their word for it. So yeah, I have my doubts with the story, but unlike with the kid from Heaven Is Totes Five Real OMG, who came out and said he made it up and that his dad sold the story, I don't know if that's the case with this family. But I'm not denying that they didn't have to go to the hospital. I'm not denying that she didn't have this disorder. I'm not denying the course of events. What my problem is with this movie is the filmmaking because that's what I'm looking at. And the filmmaking is absolutely corny. Like I mentioned that movies like Hail Caesar and The Finest Hours were pretty corny. This was really corny. This was really hackneyed where it just laid back and was carried by these different tropes. Like Queen Latifah as the sassy black friend that she meets in Boston. And the mother apparently knows better than any of the doctors, except for the one special doctor. The doctors that are based around her in Texas, she is very sassy with. Because they don't know what's wrong with my daughter. And one of the doctors is like, ma'am, I'm the doctor? I am telling you what's wrong with your daughter. Like, he takes this tone with her that I've never seen any doctor take. Even, like, first-year medical student. Like, you see them take it in, like, scrubs. Outside of scrubs, I haven't seen a doctor with this kind of sassy attitude towards a patient's mom. And as for the misdiagnoses, I was diagnosed three times before they came out and said I was on the autism spectrum originally diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. I was diagnosed with overfocused disorder. So yeah, I don't hold that against the doctors because when it comes to neurological disorders, that 
is trial and error because they're going off of symptoms. They can't test for these sort of things. It's all symptomatic. And if your symptoms say this, then that's what they're going to think. You know, there's a line in Scrubs where Dr. Cox says, hey, if, if he's referring to um, the tendency for doctors to want to pick some very rare exotic disease instead of something common. And, he's, and he has a line of, you know, if, it's, if you hear hoofbeats behind you, don't go looking for a zebra. So yeah, doctors aren't going to immediately think it's this rare neurological disorder. They're going to think it's lactose intolerance and acid reflux. That's what they're going to think because they're diagnosing from the symptoms that they can see. That's not the doctor's fault. So yeah, I have a very big issue when people try to argue with medicine, you know, because it's like, oh, the doctors don't know anything. It's not like they're using the entire history of medicine and studying for years and putting themselves in debt, most likely, to, so that they can help people. So, yeah, you know better than them who have spent their lives studying these things. <sighs> oh, yeah. Also, when they finally get to Boston to find the special... I guess, pediatrician, neurologist, whatever. He is Patch Adams. He is exactly like Patch Adams. Not the actual Patch Adams doctor, the Robin Williams Patch Adams. He's all silly and doing all kinds of, I'm a pirate and look at me, spin me around on the chair. And I don't even know if he was like that, but that is so so hacky to do in a movie. Oh, he's a kid's doctor, so he's got to act just like a big old kid. Because mm. none of it was funny. It was barely cute. Like, the first time it might have been cute. But it's not funny. It's not clever. It's hacky. It's corny. It's unnecessary. And then, of course, comes the uh, stuff with her faith and the way that's depicted. And... It's not very well done. I mean, there's like one scene of some women at church who say that Anna is sick because the family sinned, because that's how medicine works. That's how people get sick. People get cancer from sinning. Right. Yes, of course. And then later in the movie, they just outright say, oh, how do we know you didn't make this up? So first you believe that Anna is sick, but it's there, but she's sick because they sinned. And then when she gets better, it's like, oh, you made this whole story up. <sighs> See, that's the problem with this kind of filmmaking. You really, really need to work beyond the tropes to make something of substance, something that people can believe in and that ca they can enjoy. And I can't enjoy this kind of crap. I mean, there's a whole character that was added whose daughter was given cancer and made to die so that he could turn to the faith. Whatever faith he was before doesn't go into, because all that matters is he was atheist before, then the girl made his daughter believe, and then she died, and then now he's a believer too. Character doesn't even exist. They made him up, which if you're telling a true story, why are you making stuff up? That's another problem. If you're telling a true story, stick to the true story. You don't need to make stuff up if you're telling a true story. If you are, then you don't need to tell the true story. 
You just need to make up your... Why not make up a whole other thing? Why tell a true story if you're just going to make stuff up? And we were doing so well with race and with um, The Finest Hours and a bunch of other movies that... A bunch of the biopics that have come out this year in order have been fairly accurate to, to the true life. They've been fairly accurate to their sources. They haven't deviated too far from it. And it's been good. We haven't needed to deviate. And they, we've been making these great movies that don't need to lie and make stuff up. And apparently now we're right back to making stuff up because the story's not good enough. We have to make stuff up. So yeah, Miracles from Heaven is hokey and it's probably not based as much on the true story because the family could have made it up for all we know. But the movie itself made stuff up too, so who knows what's true? Whatever. At least we're done with this hokum and flim flam. Moving on. Is it true that you taped down your, your breasts? Who told you that? That from Secret Galaxy? No, no. Carl from the bar? No. Yes, Station Dan? No. Stacy from Quiznos? She's. No, God, stop. Using my Tchaikovsky piece, Coach P said it was a classic. She'd also say that about a full bush, but we all know that's disgusting. So yeah, instead of Midnight Special, I saw an independent movie written by and starring Melissa Rout from The Big Bang Theory. I don't know the character's name because I don't watch Big Bang Theory, but she's essentially um, the Jewish scientist's girlfriend. She's essentially the blonde with glasses. And... In this movie, she plays a former gymnast who uh, medaled in bronze in the 2004 Rome Olympics. And then she moves back to her small town in Ohio, based in and filmed at Amherst, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. Very small town up north by Lake Erie. And she is essentially their celebrity. You know, she's a small town celebrity, so she just... Does So she feels like she can do whatever she wants. Like, she gets free pizza at the mall, at the Sabaros, and people know her by name, and she's essentially kind of trying to mainline that, despite the fact that it's been, like, over a decade since she bronzed. So she's kind of stuck in that rut of trying to hold on to the one thing that made her famous. And her dad, played by Gary Cole, Lundberg from Office Space, among other things, is a mailman for Amherst, and he's trying to do what he can to make her get out of this rut and do something with her life because there's a new gymnast played by this actress named Haley Lou Richardson who's been in mostly, like, TV and some web series, not a lot of big stuff. This is probably her biggest role to date. Haley Lou Richardson plays this up-and-coming young gymnast who lives in Amherst and whose mom is a community college uh, janitor played by Cecily Strong from SNL and who idolizes Melissa Rauch's character who lo- and wants to be a gymnast just like her. And so there's a point where Melissa Rauch is in charge of Richard Sin's training. And at first she doesn't take it seriously. She just kind of wants to do it for some, you know, for some promised money and then... She really starts to get into it as she meets up with an old rival played by Bucky himself, Sebastian Stan, who is this kind of basically like a really mean-spirited, douchey version of 
Rob Lowe from Parks and Rec. Like, he's super athletic and lean, mean, and only cares about gold and winning medals and being the best, and he's all macho and completely douchey, and he loves shoving how better he is in the face of Melissa Rouse's character and basically everybody around the movie. Like, he's very manipulative, and he's very mean-spirited, and he's a super douchey character, and Sebastian Stan does a great job. He is awesome at this role. And at the same time, there's a sort of aid to the gym where Melissa Rouse's character worked, played by Thomas Middleditch from Silicon Valley and a bunch of other comedy projects. I haven't recognized him. He kind of looks like Seth Meyers to me, one of the Meyers brothers, but no relation. And so it's about how Middleditch and Rouch really hit it off and trying to get this girl to meddle. Not just because um, Rouch wants money, but because she starts to discover this love of coaching because it allows her to be the gymnast continue gymnastics the way she couldn't before. And it doesn't exactly end how you think it would. You know, it's it's uplifting, but it's not completely adherent to the same tropes of underdog sports movies that you usually see, like with Eddie the Eagle. Like, Eddie the Eagle went exactly how you think it would. The bronze doesn't. The bronze, for one thing, is some of the most creative cussing I've ever seen. Like, she one time refers to Richardson's mouth as a cockhole. She is brilliant at coming up with these kind of off-the-cuff comments. And it's all raunchy and mean-spirited. And I loved every second of her on screen as this character. Like, I could watch an entire series based around this character as sort of a eastbound and down, based in Ohio sort of thing. And... You know, it's very well written. You know, not just the dialogue, but, you know, the story follows the tropes enough to carry through, but doesn't adhere to it so much as to be predictable. Like, you're not quite sure how the tropes are going to go out this time, but it's really fun to watch. One of my favorite movies of the year so far. Like, this is going to be third, right behind Zootopia and Deadpool. Really great job by Melissa Rauch, and I really hope she writes more movies. I said it's okay. Can let go now, though. Now, the only theater playing the bronze near me were in Regals, and at the same time, the Regal nearby me was playing Anomalisa, and like this one-time showing in between Whiskey Tango Foxtrot showings. So I decided to take the time to go see Anomalisa since I had watched Shaun the Sheep to kind of catch up on Oscar movies, even though the Oscars had already happened. So I decided to watch Anomalisa since, eh, I'll probably never go see it again. Anomalisa is from Charlie Kaufman, the guy behind being John Malkovich. And it's a weird little story because it's David Thewlis... Professor Lupin from the Harry Potter series as this sort of motivational speaker and manager guy who is like the top in his field for customer service. Like he writes this book that everybody says improves production by like 90%. And other than that, everybody else is pretty much played by Tom Noonan. And I think that's kind of what put me off at first because Tom Noonan has like this 
really boring voice that puts you to sleep. And hearing him talk as all these different characters, including the women, is really, uh, you know, kind of annoying and it's really off-putting. Not to mention that the puppets for the stop motion have this line that goes under their eyes and it's really weird and off-putting and I never really tackle it. It's just kind of part of it. And at the same time, uh, David Doolis' character, Michael, is kind of like in a rut. Like, he's not in love with his wife and kid. He feels kind of stuck and it's that's done through Thomas Noonan as all the voices around him kind of being this flat and monotone and boring. And so there's a point where he hears Jennifer Jason Lee as this character named Lisa, who's kind of awkward and, you know, has a bunch of different character flaws about her. Like, she's very introverted and she's very, like, self-deprecating and... You know, she's a bit overweight and she, you know, she's a bit older and she's kind of, you know, like this really awkward character, but she is the only voice that Michael hears. And so she's Lisa and they mention at some point that she remembers this word from his book called Anomaly. And so she's, she thought of herself as this anomaly, this, you know, weird out of, you know, where single person that isn't like anybody else. And so he calls her Anomalisa. And so the movie kind of tackles how Michael is dealing with this sort of monotony of his life. And, you know, if he can escape that with this Lisa character. And it's kind of interesting. And I, you know, I dig where it goes. I think the puppetry wasn't that great. Like, like there's some points where it deals with, like, his puppet face coming apart. But otherwise, it's kind of weird to look at, like... I'm surprised they didn't have any sort of, like, mask for the faces so that they didn't look... So that you couldn't tell that it was a puppet. Like, if it was stop motion and you couldn't tell the demarcations of the face where it came apart, I think that would be better. Otherwise, you kind of have to address it. Like, if he saw people's faces always coming apart. Like, if he noticed the puppetry... Like, if he noticed that things were puppets. I think that would be more interesting. Because it's tackling that sort of weird design and the characters, but that's just me, that's just me from an aesthetic point of view, maybe that's exactly what Kaufman wanted, it's pretty flawless and fluid animation, like it, like there are some points where it kind of goes over into the uncanny valley, it's so fluid, and it's a decent movie, like I can understand why that was nominated, but I also understood why Inside Out won, because it's got a big studio behind it, and honestly, Inside Out's a much better movie, Inside Out is much better paced, it's much better thought out, There's some flaws in Inside Out, but I think the animation is more fluid in Inside Out. It's some better design work. Anomalisa is cool. I probably wouldn't have seen it if it wasn't nominated, but hey, you know, good for Charlie Kaufman for doing what he does. That covers the review portion. After the break, it's time for the Come to Jesus talk, at least for films. Welcome back to the second half of Popcorn Junkie, 
where our discussion this week will be on Christianity in films. Now, I've been pondering what to say for this segment, trying to look at it from a philosophical point of view, from all these different kind of metaphysical uh, ways of thinking, and none of it worked because it's not about movies. This is a movie discussion podcast. We can save those discussions for different podcasts. This is a movie discussion podcast, and when it comes to Christianity in film, it's either one of two things. It's either depictions of the Bible on film, or it's depictions of other Christians in film. And when it comes to Hollywood, they tend to favor depictions of the Bible, because they can treat that sort of like telling stories. And they've been telling these sort of biblical epics since probably the beginning of Hollywood. I mean, fairly into their career, when they started to make bigger and bigger budgeted movies, they would tackle things. This is how we get things like Ben-Hur and The Robe and Last Temptation of Christ. And there was a whole Genesis movie that tried to compress all these different stories from Genesis. So we'll get that more often. There are certain times where they will depict Christians in film. And it's about the Christian people. And from Hollywood, you usually get those from independent companies. This is where we get movies like Doubt, which was based on a four-person play that I also recommend. And Philomena, which is a great movie about a Catholic British woman who has to suffer all these injustices from the church and also finds out her son that was taken from her turned out to be gay and advocated for AIDS research and treatment. So you get those kind of movies where it's very well done, very honest depictions of Christians. More often than not, when people think of Christian films, they think of Christian evangelical propaganda. Things like the Left Behind series and God's Not Dead and Miracles from Heaven and all these different movies that are made by essentially churches to preach. They're not meant to be insightful stories about Christians. They're meant to preach. They're sermons set to film. And more often than not, they're not good. They're not very well made. They're not very well written. They're not very well acted. It's all very poorly done. And honestly, if they had more outsiders working on it that might improve what they're trying to do, but because they want to keep it in-house and make it by Christians for Christians, you get crap like God's Not Dead. I could go on and on about God's Not Dead. It is so terrible. I mean, the only movie that I heard was worse than God's Not Dead that came out that year was Kirk Cameron Saving Christmas. And I think what epitomizes the kind of crap that happens is God's Not Dead. In Christian movies, the ones that are made by independent Christian filmmakers and production houses that are made for evangelical Christians, you get crap like God's Not Dead, where it takes that stupid anecdote about the Christian telling off his atheist philosophy professor and tries to make that into like a feature-length film. And it's not very well done because even the part that has to do with that anecdote is terribly done because it turns into some sort of... It's miracle on 34th Street style, proving God exists by law sort of nonsense. And where you could have an interesting 
philosophical debate movie between a Christian student and an atheist professor where they come to kind of see each other eye to eye and realize where the other's coming from and acknowledge their different beliefs, even though they still devoutly believe in what they do. And that could make for an interesting film. That's not what we get. In God's Not Dead, we get the perfect little Christian law student who refuses to write down that God is dead on an assignment that is pass-fail the first day of class. I have never heard of such an assignment. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody getting a pass-fail first day assignment, especially not one that was intentionally provocative. Those kind of, it feels like something that somebody who never went to college comes up with. And they, that's probably what happened. They either didn't go to college or they went to some religious college like Liberty University. And this is how they view secular college, you know, public or private institutions that aren't evangelical and Christian. And on top of that, Kevin Sorbo as the atheist philosophy professor is chewing up the scenery like a f***ing guinea pig. He's just gnawing down on that scenery, acting like such a caricature of what these people think of atheists. As this guy who almost looks like he's going to kill this Christian student for believing. And that never happened. I never saw that happen. I never saw a professor berate a student for believing and, like, threaten his life for it. You get that more often from super religious wingnuts who are so outraged at the fact that somebody doesn't believe their dogma than you are to get it from the opposite end. But that's not what they feel. They feel they're the ones that are persecuted. So their perfect little Christian who's just sitting there believing, not hurting anybody, is berated by the atheist professor. But that's not what we've seen in the real world. Where we are, we see religious zealots attack people for not even believing enough. Like, it's not just not believing. They'll attack people for not believing in the right way. So there's no winning with that kind of zealotry. And so not only does Kevin Sorbo act like this maniac over some kid who believes in Jesus, but by movie's end, they murder him, not the people in the film, the screenwriters. The screenwriters kill him off so that he can convert literally on his deathbed, which is the street, because he gets run over. That's terrible. That's terrible writing. Like, just, oh, I'm dying. Now I'm going to convert. No, no. That's not how you even write. You want to make a good, compelling story about the atheist converting on his deathbed. You make it so that the atheist kind of struggles with converting and whether or not he believes. And then by movie's end, when he dies, then he converts because then he starts to see what's going on. But just outright angry atheist suddenly converting doesn't make sense. That never happens. And then on top of all this garbage, then they decide to throw in a subplot of a Muslim girl who gets beaten by her father for wanting to convert to Christianity. 
And she's Muslim because she's a tan girl who wraps a towel around her head. That's how you know she's Muslim. Instead of actually wrapping a hijab around her head or something vaguely resembling a hijab, they grabbed one of the towels from the linen closet and wrapped it around her head like one of those old school toothache bandages. And that makes her Muslim now. And instead of like reading from, just reading from the Bible, she's listening to Christian rock and that makes her want to be Christian. Christian rock has never made me want to be Christian. Christian rock has made me less Christian. And yet this makes her want to be Christian instead of Muslim. And then when her dad finds her iPod with Christian rock, he beats her. Not even on camera, they like do that quick pan away so that you don't see, but you hear all the slapping noises of the Muslim dad beating his daughter for believing in Christ. And what is wrong with you? Why would you do that? Ah, oh, but hey, it's okay that her father beats her because she gets to go to the Christian concert at the end and smile. It's okay that her father beats her mercilessly for wanting to believe because she still gets to go see the concert. The concert where they play the movie's theme song. Who the f does that? Why would that doesn't got So yes, I don't much care for God's Not Dead. And I think it's very exemplary of what is inherently bad about quote-unquote Christian cinema. Because where you have interesting and compelling stories about faith and spirituality, like doubt, like Philomena, instead you get this nonsense garbage that's pulled out of somebody's ass and being told, believe in Jesus. Uh, as for the biblical epics, that's always going to happen. People are always going to adapt biblical epics. I mean, that's storytelling. That's basic old school storytelling. That's always going to happen. But the only way to make really good, interesting films about Christians is to kind of let people outside of Christianity tell them. People who know how to tell a good story. You wanna know what happens when you don't have people from the outside helping to make these movies? You get loving the bad man. What is that, you might ask? I'll tell you. It's a movie made by a Christian production company about a woman in a love triangle with her rapist and her stalker. I am not making this up. Look up Loving the Bad Man. The premise is a devoutly Christian woman gets raped and the rapist is caught. The conflict is the woman falling in love and wanting to marry the rapist who is also the father of her unborn child. Now, this isn't at the behest of her very Christian family and this isn't against her will. This is... Her, everyone else around her telling her, what is wrong with you? Why are you marrying? This? Why are you obsessed with this guy who raped you? And yet she is steadfast on marrying the rapist who impregnated her because the Bible says so. Because that's the Christian thing to do. Who the f let that happen? What the f 
is wrong with you? Why would you ever, ever allow that to happen? Vince had to go through screenwriting, through pre-production, casting, through the production process, acting, film grips, and cameramen had to be paid. Editors had to be sit down and edit everything in this movie. It was sold and released to the public. Who the f let that happen? Mm. Oh, and let's not forget Tyler Perry, who loves taking his audiences to church. The only two Tyler Perry movies I've ever had the chance to see are Daddy's Little Girls and Temptation Confessions of a Marriage Counselor. Daddy's Little Girls is hokey. The best thing I can say about it is Rudy Huxtable plays a crack whore. But other than that, it's completely, you know, forgettable. Temptation, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, is about how a black Christian gray stereotype gives everybody AIDS. That's right. The whole point of Temptation is that if you have sex outside of marriage, everybody gets AIDS. AIDS. What the f***, Tyler Perry? What is wrong with you? That has, why would you give people, actual people, die every day from HIV and AIDS-related illnesses? And you, in order to prove a point to not cheat on your spouse, is to give your characters AIDS as punishment so that everybody knows not to cheat on their spouses and go to church. What the f*** is your problem, man? Why would you do that? Why would you ever think that? Out of the myriad of other treatable, curable, sexually transmitted diseases, out of the other punishments that you could have for characters cheating on their spouses, Fatal Attraction had somebody trying to murder their lover for wanting to be with their spouse and family. You gave everybody AIDS. What the fuck? Uh, so, yeah, this was a pretty fruitful discussion, right? Just me ranting and cursing about the horrible filmmaking choices of devout Christians. This won't backfire on me in the least now, will it? So yeah, the bottom line is, with any religion, with absolutely any religion, the best way to tell a good story is to have third-party input. Allow other people to help you tell the story. That's what made Philomena so great. That's what made Doubt so great. It's what makes so many of these other Christian stories that are made by these outside independent film production companies so good is that they're allowed to tell these stories about faith and about spirituality without adhering to the zealotry and the dogma and all the nonsense that you see in these devoutly evangelical Christian films. Okay, uh, hopefully less insulting diatribe slash discussion next week. Because we get Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. This won't turn into a horrible rant about Zack Snyder ruining DC. Uh, we also have My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 and the independent millennial rom-com Get a Job. 
Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and my only place of worship is the United Church of Cinemark. theme song to Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up Nafio on DeviantArt.com. Any other clips are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. When they had those miracles from heaven, did it make you feel like crying, or did you think it was kind of gay? Like well, the one believe in the miracles from heaven. Mmm, 9-11. 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11,